All right, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter uh, 4, 1 John chapter 4, I'm sorry, 1 John, yes, 1 John chapter 4, and uh, we're going to be looking at a new question uh, this morning for our Truth for Living series, and just to quickly review what we've already looked at, um, we've looked at the first question as this is a section on the goodness of God. What is our good God like? He's holy, loving, perfect, and all he is and all he does. He's true, noble, just, pure, and praiseworthy. It is because of God that we even know what good is. And it's important for us to sort of pick up on that because as we're going to talk about the love of God, it is only because of God that we know what love is. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. And the verse for that was Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so if God is a good God, then what does he do? Well, who is the one who gives us the good things we have in our life? And God is the one who gives us all good things. And the psalmist in Psalm 84, God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And then we sought to define a little bit of what the goodness of God is. How do we discuss or to talk about God's goodness? And, and we use some words. He's holy or he's separate. He's, he's uh, perfectly good, perfectly pure, and perfectly committed to his glory. And again, we talked about um, at one point that idea of him being committed to his glory. <clears throat> How does that not make him from our perspective, maybe a selfish or even a narcissistic type of person. And the answer is that when God is committed to his glory, that is what actually brings about the greatest good for us. If God were committed to anything lesser than his glory, then we would not be able to be beneficiaries of his goodness. And of course, Isaiah 6, 3b, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So for God to be good, the question we looked at then is, does that allow or the possibility that God would ever sin? Does God ever sin? And of course not. God's character and actions are always righteous. It is impossible for him to treat someone in a sinful way. And the psalmist declares this, the Lord is righteous in how many of his ways? All. And in how many of his works? All of his works. And so if God is a God who does not sin, then can he lie? The answer is no. God never lies. He's absolutely trustworthy, and his word is absolute truth. And, of course, Titus or Paul describes this to Titus in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the world began. And then uh, while, uh, uh, while this was the one, was this the one you did, Ben? Was this not the one you did? No. I, I'm, I'm all confused. So does God give to everyone good things they do not deserve? And God is a gracious God who delights in giving good things to everyone. We talked about how God is gracious, and he's gracious both uh, to, those, to everyone who is undeserving, and then he's particularly gracious to those who have faith in Christ. Uh, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to, and we have that word again, all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. And then this was the one that, Ben, you took uh, for us while I was away. I appreciate this. Would God rather punish people or forgive them? And God loves to forgive 
and show mercy by withholding the judgment we rightly deserve. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, Solomon, who, or I'm sorry, Jeremiah, who writes Lamentations, he describes one of the things that drives the grace of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, as his steadfast what? Love. His steadfast love. And so this evening, we're going to just consider who is the source of all true love. And before we give the answer, which is sort of obvious, who is the source of all good love? God is the source of all uh, all true love. Um, but that's we know that's the right answer. In fact, I guess I'll put it up there since we already said it. God is the source of all true. Boy, I can't type today. Love, not live. Um, although it's true, he's the true. He's the source of all life too. Without him, there would be no love. But the question I wanted to pose is. Where do you think people think love comes from? Their, their self, themselves? Okay. So love is something that's generated just sort of naturally within humanity. Where else do people say love comes from? There, I heard of several things. From other people? All right. Okay. Romantic relationships. We find love. Uh, in, in that way? Their mother, all right. Their father. Right. Yep. So parents, particularly mothers, yep. In fact, God describes his love for his people like a mother's love. Where else do people think the idea of love comes from? So a lot of these things are defining it um, by the experience that people have, um, what they feel or what they've had shown to them. Um, so I want us to be careful here. Is a mother's love real love? Yes, absolutely. Um, is the love that someone has romantically uh, for their partners, is that real love? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, but yes, it, it definitely can be real love. Um, so we need to be careful that those things are, we don't write them off completely or entirely. Love truly does exist. But the mantra of today that seeks to define love defines it in this way. Love is what? Love. All right? You've heard that, that statement. Love is love. And that's often used to say that love has no boundaries, love has no definition, and love can look like anything. Um, there's a type of love in that, but where? what type of love is that? Who, When someone says love is love, who ultimately is the object of their love? Themselves. Because they want to love what makes them feel whatever feeling they're looking to have. And that's why what John tells us in 1 John chapter 4 is so important. The verse here, we're going to look at uh, uh, the entire passage here, but the verse particularly that's pulled out here is, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Why would John make that statement? Because 
God is love. So I want to ask sort of this question. The answer is going to be obvious because of the subject we're talking about, but try not to think about that and just think what would be the first thing that would come to your mind. What is Christianity's defining characteristic? You say, this is what Christianity is about. What would you, what would you often hear? I said don't. <laughs> I said don't. You gave me the answer. You gave the right answer. Give me the wrong answer, all right? So what would we often, and they're, they're nece- not necessarily bad things. So some, huh? Okay, obedience. Law, grace, okay. Um, servitude, faith, um, hope. Okay, no, that's fine. There are people that have that, that, that uh, unfortunately they have that perspective because we have failed to answer this question as Nicole did. <laughs> um, we're going to look at what John has to say here, and I'm going to argue that love is Christianity's defining characteristic. Um, that love is, is, the, is the point of what God is seeking to drive, drive through. And I think I'm going to demonstrate this biblically, um, and particularly in our passage here, but we're going to look at some other things as well. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, and we're going to read through verse 21. Beloved, now I love it how he starts it that way because he starts with love. And particularly he's exhibiting the very thing he's calling his readers to do here. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because, this is our verse, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the the offering that satisfies for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen And testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates 
his brother. He is a what? Liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So John gives us a master class here in what love is. And particularly, he drives to love being the defining characteristic of Christianity. And the way in which Christians are to relate to each other and to relate to the world around them. Now, there are other passages that we could look at that discuss this. In particular, when you think of love and you think of chapters in the Bible, what chapter very sort of quickly comes to your mind? 1 Corinthians 13, often described the love chapter of of Scripture. And there Paul makes a very strong case. In fact, he says there are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of those things, greater than faith, greater than hope, is what? Love. And he describes how love is, if we don't have love, but yet we have everything else, we're nothing. We're empty. We empty words. We're clanging cymbals. So love becomes the defining aspect of Christianity. Now, why? Why is that the case? And John lays that out for us here. And the first thing I'd like to point out is Christianity is defined by love because of our example of love. Christianity is defined by love because of our example of love. And we see this again. God is love. Now, it's important to note here that when John is telling us that God is love, he's not merely saying that God exhibits love or that God acts in a loving way or that God loves others, but rather that love finds its very definition, its very clearest and ultimate expression in understanding who God is. If you understand or get to know God, you will understand and get to know love. That is the point that John is making. If we want to truly define love, we must look to God. Now, this is where it's important to recognize that this stands at odds with how most everyone else in the world defines love. They define love by looking where? Inward. Looking to their feelings, their ideas, their conceptions. But the reality is that love is found by not looking in, but looking what? Up, outward to God. There's an old saying that you're entitled to your opinion, but your your own opinion, but you're not entitled, entitled to your own facts. John is telling us the facts. God is love. Love's truest expression is found in who God is. And that's where we see John's major command here in this passage begins, beloved, let us love one another. He places the motivation then for that command in understanding who God is. So this is important for us to to remember. Theology is sort of a scary word, right? We worry about understanding or delving into the depths of who God is. And there's a lot of big things about God in Scripture that our tiny little puny minds can't fully comprehend. But ultimately, if, if theology if you break that word down into its cognate forms, it just simply means the knowledge of God. And so there's a very practical um, 
uh, practical result of knowing God. When you know God, guess what you also know? Love. You're able to see what love is the closer you get to who love, who the more closer you get to who God is, the closer you get to what genuine love is. And so because God is love, then believers who claim to have theology, knowledge of God, all right, what must they then have? If they're truly knowing God, then what will they be doing? They'll be loving. They'll be loving others. And if they don't love God, then they are, as John very clearly says, or if they don't love others but say they love God, say they know God, then what are they? A liar. Now, there's a lot of different ways that apologists and and theologians have sought to, quote-unquote, prove that God exists. Um, We can use... Uh, the argument from nature and say, well, we live in an ordered universe and that ordered universe has to have an intelligent designer. We can, we can use the idea of a moral compass and the conscience within man and that that is something we don't see in the rest of creation, but rather we see it clearly in humanity, that we have laws and we have an idea of what's right and what's wrong. Where does that come from? That was what C.S. Lewis used. But frankly, I would say that the most compelling argument for God's existence is to be found in how Christians love. That is how we show that God exists. If God exists and if we claim to know him, then we should be known as a people of what? Love. Now, here's the problem. Is the church typically known as a people of love? No. And somehow here, we've missed the boat greatly. We have to recognize that this all comes back to the very way in which God created us. We can see this in Genesis chapter 1. And just keep, keep, as we read through these verses, I want you to keep in mind what John says. God is love. God says, as he creates Adam and Eve, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, in his own image. um, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, some things to note here. Adam is created, Eve is created to image or to reflect who God is. If God is love, then what is going to be one of the primary ways in which they reflect the image of God? By doing what? Loving. Loving each other. And that is particularly why when when God looks and, and Adam is naming all the animals and there's no mate found for Adam... God sees that it's not good that he's alone. One of the reasons for that, I I would posit, and I'm not going to be real dogmatic about this, but I would posit that one of the reasons for that is he doesn't have anyone to share that image of God, that loving image of God with anyone else. So he gives Adam Eve. And he doesn't just give Adam Eve. he He creates Eve so that the two of them together can love one another. That's how they image God. And even in the dominion mandate, 
He speaks to them and he tells them later on in verse 28 to be fruitful and multiply and to, to uh, um, have dominion over the earth to fill it and subdue it. And so one of the quintessential, as quintessential aspects of humanity, one of the th reasons we exist is to image God. And if we are to image God, then what does that mean we must be imaging from the very basis of our creation? Love. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God. And then he does what John does. What kind of children are we to the Father? We're loved children. We're beloved children. So we experience the love of God. We're to imitate God. And therefore, when we do that as imitators of God, what comes along with that? Also, walk in what? Love. Now, notice what Paul is saying here. Now, he's going to go on and talk about how Christ provides that example for us. He shows us what true love is by giving himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God. But even before that happens, even before that example that defines what true love is, that it sacrifices, that from the very basis of our creation, we're to imitate God and to love others. Now, what's the problem? How does, and, and this is something we need to keep in mind, and this is something that those who um, will criticize the church often forget, because it's true, the church has done a terrible job of loving. But has the world done any better? In fact, what happened, well, what's causing all this lack of love in the world? What makes it so that people don't love each other like they ought to? Sin. How loving was Adam to Eve after the fall? Genesis 3, 11 through 12, God comes and says, why are you hiding? And Adam says, well, I was naked. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Notice what Adam does here. Does he take responsibility? No, he deflects. And then he lovingly blames his wife. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. One of the, one of the most immediate consequences of sin entering the world is that it distorted and twisted Adam's love so that it was no longer outward towards his wife Rather, who was Adam was loving in this moment, but who was he loving? Himself. And so this is the abnegation, the turning away, the, 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 the pushing aside of what God had intended for mankind to be. So when John says, anyone who does not have love does not know God, he makes that point because God is love. Now, we have the scriptures. We have what God has done to not just tell us that we're supposed to love, but he also describes what that love looks like. God manifests his love. Notice what John says here. He says, in this, verse 9, the love of God was made manifest among us. 
How did God show us that he loved us? He sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. There is a great contrast in Genesis chapter 3 of loves. You have Adam and Eve's selfish love for themselves, and you have God's love that is demonstrated in the promise of Genesis 3.15, that he would send the seed of the woman whose heel would be bruised, that he would sacrifice his only begotten son so that he could redeem those who had come under the curse of sin. And what is the wages of sin? Death. Notice what John says here. God made his, ma- his love manifest among us. He sent his only son into the world so that we might what? Not die, but live through him. This has been God's intention for redemption for all eternity. To manifest what true love looks like. Exodus 34, 1, the Lord passed before Moses, proclaims, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he's also a God who can't just let his love overwhelm his grace and mercy or overwhelm his justice and and wrath. And so he is also a God who does not simply clear the guilty. And that's why what John says is so important. How does God clear us of our sins? He doesn't clear us and remove the penalty completely. He clears us and places the penalty where? On Christ. Who gives himself up because he what? He loves us. Hosea. Israel had spent hundreds of years rebelling against God. And notice how that rebellion affected God. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called... What did God's people do? The more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning offerings to the idols. And so God pours out his heart. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? And then notice... Notice the level of love that God has for his people and particularly the level of love that he has for them because of the wrong choices they're making. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. What what does true love look like when we see what God has done in saving unworthy sinners is that in our sin in our rebellion that brings more and more judgment, God grows in compassion and warmth for us. And so he says, I'm not going to execute my burning anger. Not again going to destroy Ephraim. And then here's what's so quintessential about the love of God. God is not what? A man. 
the Holy One in your midst, midst, and I will not come in wrath. The argument here that God is making is any other person who faced the way that they were that Israel treated him, any other man, any man treated that way, how would they respond? They'd go ballistic. We talk about how our patience begins to what? Wear thin. Many of you who have children, I'm sure at times, you've maybe even said it to your children. Child, my patience is wearing thin. God is a God who is not like us. And so what he does is one of the most well-known passages in Scripture why did he give the son? Why did he give the promise whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life? Why did he send the son into the world not to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him? Why did he do all this? For God so loved the world. This is how God manifests his love. And then God is a God who then abides with those who love. Notice in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected or brought to completion in us. This is, this is a statement that should floor us. John is making a, a well-known truth about God very clearly known here. No one has ever seen God. Moses had a slight opportunity. And when he, when he had that opportunity... God shielded him as he walked by, and then he essentially said, I'm going to let you see my, my, the hind parts of my glory. Or essentially, if there could be a part of God that was least glorious, that's what he would allow Moses to see. And what, was, what happened? Moses' face shone. He came down off of the mountain, and what did the people of Israel do? What's wrong with you? People's face don't shine like that. And so it was so disturbing that what did Moses have to do? Put a veil on. No one has ever seen God. But then John makes this remarkable statement that if we love one another, it is an indication. He's not saying that if we love one another, that causes God to come and abide in us. But he's saying if we love one another, then it shows that God is already living in us. Think of that. The God who no one has seen abides in his people. And as a result of that, notice what he says. This is, this is mind-blowing. The love of God then becomes completed or perfected where? In us. This is why Jesus says in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. And then notice what he says. And this is why both what John is saying and particularly what Jesus is saying, this is why 
Love is the quintessential aspect, the defining aspect of Christianity. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if we do what? If we have the right doctrinal statement in our churches. If we come to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night. If we are upstanding citizens in the community now. How do people know that we're Christians if we love one another? So Christianity is defined by love. Which brings us then, secondly, very quickly, I want to go over these next two points. Christianity then, because of the abiding presence of God, is defined by love because Christians are indwelt by the God of love. Depend, and we see this, first of all, by the fact that we're indwelt by the Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. Dependence on the Spirit is necessary if we are to love. Those who love are those whom God abides with. And God abides with us through the Spirit that he's given to us. This is so important to note. You cannot manufacture this type of love no matter how hard you try it must be brought about through the spirit's influence in your life it comes supernaturally not naturally and what does the spirit lead us to do then it leads us to confess christ verse 14 since we have the spirit we've seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world this is the reality of what the Spirit does. If we want to love, the love that we have is going to first primarily be seen in our confession of Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. And then as a result of that, we ourselves are graciously transformed to love God himself. Notice what he says in verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. This confession is not just simply saying, I believe these things. Rather, it is a confession saying, I am staking everything on these things. My first love is Christ. What's the greatest commandment in the law? Love the Lord your God. How can you do that? How can you love the Lord your God? You have to have God abiding in you through the Spirit to bring you to that love. And then, when that happens, the next natural result of that is we love who? Our neighbor. So Christianity is defined by, the love because, but defined by love because Christians are indwelt by the God of love. And then finally, Christianity is defined by love because of our love for others. We follow God's example. This is what... John has been pointing to throughout this. Why do we love? Why do we love? Because God first loved us. In fact, we see this in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Paul in Ephesians 5, 2, just to remind you, walk in love as Christ loved us. How are we to live our lives in love? We have to live them in love by showing and demonstrating the love of Christ. 
And as we follow God's example, we then respond to his presence. This is where we come to the end here, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. You cannot hate with God in your heart. You cannot hate with the spirit indwelling you. And so if you say, I love God and you hate, then that is a clear indication that you don't love God and that God does not dwell within you. And so we respond to God's presence within us by what we see in verse 21. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The last words of Jesus' prayer before he goes to the cross are this. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known so that what may be in them? Love. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus, before he goes to the cross, says why he's come. So that we would know the Father and that by knowing the Father, we would have the love of the Father in our lives. So who is the source of all true love? God is the source of all true love. Without him, there would be no love. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity we've had to discuss it. I pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and Encourage us with these things that we would love one another. May we truly be defined by love. Work in our hearts as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.